Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Kimberly Hahn, author and speaker, giving a talk entitled, Understanding Our Mother, Praying the Scriptural Rosary. Mrs. Hahn's talk was part of the Student Leadership Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. You know, Mary is one of the most difficult subjects for a non-Catholic. How many of you have been not Catholic and, and now have converted? Okay, a few of you, a few of you. For a Catholic, when you talk to a non-Catholic and you mention Mary and you can see there's a visceral reaction, like hair rising on the back of their neck, or I mean, my mother is one of the most gracious Christian women I know, and I mention Mary and I can see her brace herself. It's a strange thing. I mean, as a convert now, I look back and I think, why is there such a strong reaction against someone who is so wonderful? But I think, um, and I, I don't really have my mind fully around it, but I will share a little bit. I think part of it is that non-Catholics feel like they have to balance out Catholics. Catholics say so much about her, so they say nothing, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. But it really is um, a sad thing that we don't talk about her, especially as the premier disciple, but many other ways, her own personal relationship with us that Jesus desires us to have. And so hopefully some of the things that I share will give you an opportunity uh, to see how you could share this with family, with friends, with non-Catholics, so that they can begin to open their hearts more deeply to Christ as he wants them to open, it, uh, open their hearts toward Mary. Of all of the obstacles that seem to litter the path on the way to the Catholic Church, Mary was absolutely the greatest one. Even when many theological um, convictions fell into place in terms of the Eucharist and the authority of the church, when it came to Mary, it was just, it just was so hard. And you know, Scott would come downstairs, we were in Milwaukee at the time, he was studying for his doctorate, and he would come downstairs and say, can I read something to you? And I said, is it about Mary? <laughs> and he'd say, yes, and I'm, no. I don't want to hear it, you know? And here I had a master's in theology, so you would think, oh, you know, you want to study theology, you want to understand it, and yet I didn't. I didn't want to, to be challenged about her. To me, she really represented a, a diversion from devotion to Christ um, and substituting the real thing for something that was plastic or marble. She was the box that held the present and you understand little children playing with the box instead of the gift, but the focus is the gift. And why would I want to waste any time on the box when Jesus was the present? And depending on what Catholic I spoke to before I was Catholic, and I would say occasionally even as a Catholic, but mostly I was probably hypersensitive to it before becoming a Catholic. Um, when I would speak to um, Catholics, they often would say things that were not true about Mary. It would, it would come off like she was the fourth person of the Godhead, you know? And um, uh, it just seemed like the Blessed Mother was attributed, everything was attributed to her, and they just didn't get around to mentioning Jesus. Now, of course, I was looking for that. I was sensitive to it. I was looking for that. But at the same time, is it on? Okay. Can you hear me? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> Well, we'll hope springs, ah, there you go, there you go. 
Um, and in fact, after I became a Catholic, we were at a homeschool meeting. I had helped found a homeschool group in Joliet, Illinois, and um, uh, we were tentatively trying to have a mix of Catholics and non-Catholics. And Mary came up, um, and one of the Catholics decided to explain Mary and said, you know, sometimes you can be so um, worried about approaching your dad, your dad's kind of angry and, and you know, you don't know what to do and so you hide behind your mother's skirts. That's how we see Mary. And I just had to rebuke her even though I was a new Catholic because I knew this was just going to um, uh, reaffirm all of the incorrect thoughts about Mary and I said, that's not true at all. We don't go to Mary because we fear God. We go to Mary because she loves God and she's gonna show us how to love God better. We don't ever pit Mary versus the Father, ever. So how could I reconcile the love that I had for Jesus and that I shared with my Catholic brothers and sisters with the antagonism that I felt toward Mary? As Scott shared his growing appreciation of the Virgin Mother of Jesus, I really felt challenged. I felt challenged at two levels. On a personal level, it was hard to have another woman so capture his heart. Okay. <laughs> and we would be having kind of an intense conversation slash argument, and all of a sudden he would leave, he'd go in our bedroom, and he'd be heading toward the door, and I would hear this little jingle of beads. And I'd think, oh, he's gonna go take a walk, and he's gonna think he's talking to Mary, the perfect woman, and then he's gonna have to come back here and deal with me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not easy. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like women who fall in love with Jesus and their husbands who aren't, who aren't Christians feel like they've been usurped, you know. And I want to tell you, it is something when you feel like you're competing with the mother of God. <laughs> but then I began to be sensitive that at least I paid no attention to her. Apart from having a statue of Mary as part of the creche um, at Christmas time, Mary was a non-person to me. And, and I think you'll find that's true for almost all non-Catholics. Some are antagonistic, but for the most part, she's just a non-person. She's somebody that you bring out and acknowledge at Christmas time because that's how we got Jesus. But aside from that, they really don't even contemplate what a true disciple she was. And Scott began to make me more sensitive to that, that how could I simply ignore the person that God used to bring me Christ? I'd never even looked at her as a primary role model. And I know that may strike you as very strange because as a Christian woman, how could you not at least see Mary as that primary role? But it had never been brought to my attention uh, by my father who was a pastor, my uncle who was a pastor, my brothers who were studying to be pastors, or my, my husband who was a pastor at the time. And so I began to have a new appreciation of the gift of Mary's yes, and then the gift of Jesus to me through her, very specifically through her. So I wanna share about this woman who I came to realize is my spiritual mother. Mary is so much more than a collection of doctrines and dogmas. She is a person. She was not simply the packaging of Jesus the gift. 
She herself is a gift to us. She's a holy and heroic mother who teaches us through her joys and her sufferings daily. And by studying the scriptures and praying, I am getting to know her better, and I'd like you to get to know her better too. And for those of you who might not be Catholic, or for those you know who aren't Catholic, it's really important to realize Mary is not just a gift to us. She is a gift by virtue of baptism to every believer. She is all of our spiritual mother. And so we need to understand what she has done for us so that we could have her son as our redeemer. Now, if any of you are new Catholics, this might be really challenging, but I hope you'll just give some thought and reflection as we go through some, some scenes in Mary's life, looking at her sorrows and looking at her joys and seeing the ways in which God worked in her life and seeing ways in which she has blazed a trail for us as our spiritual mother. Her joys are unique as she became the mother of the Redeemer and then shared him with us. And her sorrows are referred to as her martyrdom, even though she wasn't put to death, but it is her martyrdom, since the sufferings of the soul are greater than the, the sufferings of the body. So we're gonna ponder alongside Mary, the faith, hope, and love that was given to her and required of her. And remember, even though statues remind us of her, she is not simply a statue to um, sit on a shelf somewhere. She's not just a mere observer even of our spiritual journey. She is an active participant and wants to be more so. She's a living soul who welcomes us with open arms, with a mother's embrace, offered with the same love that she embraced her precious son Jesus. And she is a compassionate woman who enters into the pain and suffering of others with the Father's loving kindness. First joy from Luke 1, 26 to 28, we observe in the Annunciation. She responds to the joyous news that the Lord has chosen her to bear his son, the longed for redeemer. Without knowing everything that that would mean, she says, yes, be it done unto me according to thy word. Her response was not, hey, you picked the perfect gal for this job. It's humility. It's also not saying, I can do this, or I can't do this. It's just, I'm available. I'm the handmaid of the Lord. And God has a plan for each one of our lives as well. We may be tempted to respond in fear. I wondered last night, how in the world am I gonna get up and do this this morning? <laughs> it's like, no, no, I can't do it. <laughs> I need to be working at other things. And yet, and yet, I wanted to say yes because I felt like God had said, this is what he wanted me to do this morning. There are many unanswered questions, uncertainties. He doesn't ask us if we've got the whole picture. He doesn't say, do you know everything that's involved in this yes? He says, this is what I want you to do. Will you say yes? And then we respond. Next is a sorrow from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Joseph does not initially share her joy, and so she is alone at first. The Lord reveals the plan to Joseph, and he humbly responds as well. Sometimes we bear good news alone, news of a baby, news of a conversion, news of a job change or a move, but others may not share that joy at first. Some of you may have had a call to consecrated life, 
to the priesthood. And it's not initially greeted with joy. You may be alone in that joy at first, and that is a sorrow. But we pray for others to share our joy, and we allow the Lord to strengthen us while we wait. The next is a joy. Without hesitation, Mary makes plans to visit Elizabeth. She is so eager to take Jesus to others. She wants to share this good news with someone who will understand, and she glorifies the Lord in her Magnificat, which she proclaims when she greets Elizabeth. Future generations will call her blessed, and we are one of those. Next comes the sorrow. After three months, she returns home to await the birth of her baby near her mother, near her family, friends, everything that is familiar, and then the emperor intervenes and calls a census. So they have to uproot. We don't know if any relatives were there at this birth. They have to face going to Bethlehem when she is nine months pregnant. You know the, all the, the difficulties, there's no room. I even think of Joseph, I mean, he's a carpenter. He's a carpenter and he can't even lay Jesus in a manger, I mean, a cradle that he made, okay? The humility that they have to embrace they deliver in a stable, and she has to put her baby in an animal trough. Things are not always the way we expect them to be, but we can trust the Lord, and that's part of the message of the birth of our Lord. This is also a joy because Jesus gives birth to a beautiful boy, and they get to do what every parent wants to do but really can't do, and that is worship and adore that little baby. <laughs> I mean, when you hold your newborn, everything in you just wants to sing and dance. You, you just, you just uh, cannot believe how precious that is. We've had three grandchildren born this year in 2014, and I was able to be there within either a few hours or within a day of, of the birth of each one of them and to hold them and to, to just look at each eyelash and, <clears throat> and lip and finger and you know, just marvel at the work of God. And Mary and Joseph did that with Jesus, but they also actually got to worship and adore him. <laughs> she had the consolation of holding in her arms her very own son. And the shepherds bring that great news from the angels that the Savior, Christ the Lord, is born. Mary kept all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And do we, like Mary, ponder the marvelous things God is doing in our lives? He is at work. He's already been at work in your life today. Have you pondered what he has done? Next is another joy, the presentation in the temple. Mary and Joseph only bring pigeons because that's how poor they are. That is the poor person's offering at the presentation. And yet at the same time, they are bringing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord of the temple, the Lord of the Sabbath into the temple physically for the first time. Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, takes Jesus into his arms and says, mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of thy people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. And Mary and Joseph marveled at his words. But next comes a sorrow, the prophecy of Simeon. He blesses Mary and Joseph, and then he addresses Mary alone. Think about that. Think about that. 
Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against, and a sword will pierce through your own soul too, that the thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. Every pregnancy includes hopes and dreams for that child. Simeon's prophecy includes a promise of wonderful things to come and terrible things to come. Mary alone needs the courage to face the fact that Jesus' life will be threatened. She relinquishes her right to have the joy of this child without the sorrow of what will come. Obviously, she loves her son, and so she begins a journey of suffering knowing that he will suffer and die, even in the midst of all of the joy of this new, new baby. She still consents to the will of God just as she did at the Annunciation. She had to have had questions. When will that happen? Where will it happen? But she doesn't ask them. She just allows the fact that the details aren't given. And God's will be done is still her heart's cry. Waves of concern can capsize the boat of faith. And Mary chooses to trust God to keep her focus on him rather than her concerns, she faces the uncertain future without embracing fear. She doesn't know what will cause such heartache in her future, but she resolves to trust the one who knows the future. And for every one of us, none of us knows what the future holds, who will be hurt, who will die, what challenges we will personally face, but we can know the one who knows the future. And in him we place our trust, not our total comprehensive knowledge about what's gonna happen, but in him. Suffering is inevitable. If we're not suffering at the moment, it's a lull. <laughs> it's just the human condition. And so we are strengthened in between the times of suffering to be fortified, to be encouraged, and then to face what the next difficulty is. The news of impending difficulty changes things even before the actual calamity, doesn't it? It's its own suffering to know that something really difficult or terrible is going to happen. It gives us perspective on life and it deepens our gratitude and it can mean that we live each day more intentionally but if you thought about the prophecy being for her alone, that doesn't mean that Jesus meant less to Joseph because he's the foster father of Jesus instead of his physical father. He is truly the father of Jesus. That would have been heart-wrenching news for him too. But the reason I believe that it's so specific to Mary is that he is all, Simeon is also letting her know that she will face it as a widow. What else could possibly keep Joseph from being from her side, helping her lift this burden. And it's interesting that Anna comes just at that moment. Have you ever thought about it? And the, and the detail that Matthew puts in is, excuse me, uh, that Luke puts in, is that she was widowed at a young age. And so here is this woman who is elderly, who was widowed at a young age, coming and speaking to Mary as a messenger of hope and courage maybe even specifically as that young widow, reflecting back on being a young widow. Next, we have another joy. Mary and Jesus received the breathtaking witness of the Magi. 
Can you imagine how bizarre that was? For people strangely clad, coming very far, giving these incredible gifts. I mean, think how poor Mary and Joseph were, that they could only give a pigeon, and yet they're given gold and frankincense and myrrh. This witness of non-Jewish believers who are bowing down and worshiping their son, who is the Lord of the universe. And the gifts even point to those deeper realities of what is true, both that he is the king of kings and also that he will die. No sooner have the Magi left than we have the next sorrow, which is Joseph being warned in a dream of impending doom. Jesus' life is in grave danger from King Herod. The Holy Spirit reveals the plan to St. Joseph, and it's urgent, and he responds immediately and obediently. He tells Mary to rise, take, and go, and she obeys immediately. She doesn't say, hey, you know, the angel really kind of works through me. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard this message yet, you know. It's very interesting. The spiritual authority within the family is very clearly established. And when he says we have to go, they go. Mary trusts the Lord and therefore trusts her husband to lead. She relinquishes her right at that moment to raise her son where she wants. They have to go to a foreign country. They will be exiles. And they're aware of the prophecy of Rachel weeping for her children. And I can't help but think that an additional level of sorrow for Mary was that she could not warn the parents who will mourn their children while they escape. She cannot save the proto-martyrs or their bereft parents from pain. She cannot warn others as she has been warned. There is no time, and that's not the plan of God. Mary and Joseph suffer displacement, and they flee the threat of harm. And just yesterday, um, people in the community were raising funds and wiring funds because there are relatives of the Achebe family here in town who are literally fleeing their city, their, their village in Nigeria because of the Muslims pursuing them. They are being exiled within their, within their country. At this point, I don't think they're leaving their country. But right now, Christians are having to flee into exile. So this isn't just something we read about in scripture. This is something Mary has already endured, that she can be a mother to exiles, um, to comfort them. They had to leave behind everything they had. I mean, Joseph probably just had started up his new business and probably couldn't take a lot of tools with them, not a lot of possessions. They had to go from what was familiar in terms of language and customs and terrain. They had to flee at night secretly and immediately, no time for any goodbyes. And then they fled to Egypt, to a Jewish community there. Jesus would have had discomforts, and certainly Mary and Joseph shared in them tiredness, hunger, concern for safety, danger. Mary knew the scriptures and drew strength from them. And the Psalms say, the Lord is our refuge, our stronghold, our fortress, our deliverer, our shelter in the storm. We may need to leave what is familiar in obedience to the Lord. Conversion certainly was that for me, even though I know I didn't leave the Christian faith in going from being Presbyterian to being Catholic. 
but it was leaving everything that was familiar. I mean, most things that were familiar. And for my non-Catholic relatives, it's been a translation process to try to show how much continuity we actually have. Next is a joy. This is after they've returned and they're raising Jesus. And then they have this mix. It really is both joy and sorrow. And that is the finding the boy Jesus in the temple. It's one of the joyful mysteries in the rosary. And it, there is a great joy in discovering him on the third day. But think about the sorrow, because he had been missing for three days. Mary and Joseph faithfully take Jesus on this 70-mile journey with them to Nazareth, from Nazareth, sorry, to Jerusalem for Passover. And Jesus is now a son of the law. He's considered a full male because he's 13. He enjoys their trust. He's free to mingle. And they assume he's with the group that's leaving. But Jesus chooses not to leave. Is this an act of rebellion or willfulness? No. We know Christ would never be disobedient. But he counters their wishes, but he is not disobedient. He would know that they would not only want him to be with the group, but they would expect him to be. So they travel an entire day without him before they realize he's missing. Then they take a day to return to Jerusalem, and they don't find him till the third day. And think about it. If your child was missing, I mean, where did they even sleep in those three days? Did they just go until they dropped and then just rested briefly and then just kept searching? Did they eat during those three days? I mean, I've never had a child missing, but when people talk about a child that you know, either wandered away or may have been taken, it is a desperate search. It's not a, gee, I think we better head back to Jerusalem and see where Jesus is kind of thing, okay? <laughs> Mary and Joseph have frustration, they have confusion, they have concern. I think they have anger. You can be angry without sinning. They don't weary in, they, in their search. There had been so much joy in the midst of all the family and friends, in the beauty of the temple, thinking about God's saving act of Passover time. But now, is this the fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy? I mean, remember, they don't know when he's going to be put to death. It's not easy as parents to differentiate between true and false guilt when a child is lost in some way. Think of the temptation to turn on each other. Weren't you looking for Jesus? I thought Jesus was with you. The if-onlys and the what-ifs can completely derail a couple. And then there's that additional challenge of not playing the blame game. By the grace of God, when you're a parent, and it takes on a whole lot of grace, we can be better parents, but we have to entrust our children to the Lord, and that is really, really challenging. There's a commercial, and they still play it on Channel 9 News. It's 11 o'clock, do you know where your children are? Have any of you ever heard that? <laughs> they always do that. And I used to look at the TV and say, yes, I do. And then we began to have kids come here and then go to Austria and then go to other parts of the country. And it was like, I have no clue where anybody is. <laughs> we have six children and they live in six states right now. Ah, but God does. 
God knows where my children are. And so I have to relinquish in a whole new way and trust in a whole new way. Where do Mary and Joseph find Jesus? In the temple, speaking with the elders as peers. Everyone's amazed. Now, I can't even fathom the actual circumstance. But what a confliction inside of, you know, these people who are totally wowed by this wonderful 13-year-old who's just spe speaking such great wisdom and you're thinking about his folly. I mean, in your, in your mind, you're thinking, how dare you do this to us? And his response, when Mary says, we have been searching anxiously for you, his response is astounding. How is it that you sought me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? I mean, he's really showing their short-sightedness, that somehow or another they should have put it all together. Not, <laughs> not that you, thought, you might have thought I'd be here, but you should have known. I mean, it's a rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke, but it's an actual rebuke. The temple's a personal place for him. He is first and foremost the son of God, and he's reminding them of that. Not that I'm not your son, but I am God's son first. Jesus knew God's will and he was doing it. And that's a confidence actually our children don't have. So <laughs> I don't think I, I could have a child look at me and say, you know, why wouldn't you expect me to not do what you want me to do? This is God's will. At the same time, at the same time, Jesus doesn't say, and this is where I'm gonna stay for the rest of my life, right? He allows Mary and Joseph to continue to really lead and guide him as, their, as his parents, and he chooses to follow them back, to submit to their authority again. They're relieved, um, but they have a lot to ponder. And Mary knows, even though she will have more time with him, she doesn't know for sure how much more time she sees separation ahead. Part of the suffering of parents is so many unknowns and we have such limited knowledge and wisdom. It seems like as soon as we get the hang of parenting, as we were talking about, you begin to de-parent and try to figure out, okay, how do I gather them? When do I let them scatter? How do we continue to have a family cohesion even though we're dispersing? We always have to remember that first and foremost, our children belong to the Lord and we keep giving them back to him. We relinquish our right, and I think Mary did this, to control our children's lives. And we have to take time to ponder how God is working very directly on our children, to hear their hearts. And I don't know, you know, as you get inspired here and you go home and share with your parents, pray for your parents, because it's not easy for your parents to hear, you know, well now, now that you're um, here and you're so inspired, instead of coming home for spring break, you're going to do a mission trip. Mission trip? I haven't seen you in two months and you're going to leave the country for a whole week? What? You know? And, it, and it, pray for your parents because it may not be easy for them to hear that. And pray that they can open their hearts as God leads you, perhaps. Mary relinquished her right to require Jesus to obey her wishes. There's a difference what I would like my children to do and what I need to require my children to do. And it can't just be what I want. And that isn't easy for parents to differentiate always. What it's just a wish of mine versus what I need to require them to do. 
Mary accepts the mystery of God's actions directing his son. Now we enter into more of her sufferings and finally her joys. We're going to jump way ahead. And I really would love to do something about her, his ministry because I think there's some really beautiful things to ponder how she doesn't dog him on, on the journey, you know? She's not like there directing traffic, making sure he's fed, making sure he's got a place to sleep, you know? She, she really takes a back step, but at the same time, it's not like, well, fine, you're gonna do that, just go, you know? She's, she comes and we see her in a few of the, of the pictures, and I'm sure that when she could, she was near him and with him and always with him in spirit. But we're gonna jump ahead to the way of the cross. Mary was present during Jesus' suffering leading up to the crucifixion. She had too much courage and too much compassion not to be. It would have been much safer for her not to be near. She had to extend forgiveness while they hurt her son. This is not just a retrospective. Okay, if I look at the crucifixion, all in all, I will find the way to forgive the disciples for fleeing and the people for turning. And, you know, she had to walk that way of forgiveness while it happened. She understood his mission and she was of one heart with him. She bears him while he bears the cross and her presence strengthens him. Now it's dual because her pain would have increased his as his pain increased hers. She knows he is voluntarily laying down his life to redeem his people though it appears others are forcing him to die. Mary witnesses his sufferings and accompanies him. If you ever think you're going to go to Mary to try to get out of a cross, if she didn't do for Jesus, she isn't going to do it for you and me, okay? <laughs> She's not the wide back door and God the Father's guarding over the little thin path, okay? She's tough as nails but she'll be with you. She will accompany you, okay? She cannot alleviate her suffering and in reality she would not because she knew why he was dying, okay? They both knew it was essential to the salvation of the world. Mary knows the powerlessness of that feeling of a parent whose child is in severe pain, especially unjustly. She trusts the Father, giving him the gift of her suffering united to Jesus. She chooses to forgive rather than lash out at those who hurt him or abandon him. And even though other women are there who share her sorrow at one level, none of them carry the same pain she does. She perseveres at the side of Jesus as he carries the cross to Calvary for the very ones who are causing his pain and hers. Typically our response to pain and frustration is sadness, turning in to console ourselves, especially when suffering is unjust. 
Mary's sorrow is real and the suffering is unjust, but her, so her response is sorrow and not sadness. Now try to catch the difference. Sadness is turned within. Sorrow is real pain and suffering, but it is not turned inside yourself. We never refer to Mary as Our Lady of Sadness, do we? But Our Lady of Sorrow. We never say mother most sad when we go through all of those different things. I, I'm not being sarcastic. I mean, I, that's really true. But we do say mother most sorrowful. And then she keeps vigil at the cross. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the scripture says she stood at the foot of the cross. When everything in her would want to just collapse, she stood at the foot of the cross. It reminds me of Ephesians 6 in that passage on spiritual warfare. Stand, therefore. Stand, therefore. St. Paul urges us in the midst of spiritual warfare to stand. And Mary stood at the foot of the cross. She cannot take away her, his suffering, but she can share it. And she remains strong and alert and present. Courageous love is demonstrated by her presence there. And her focus is not on her suffering, but being present to him. And what does she hear when he says, I thirst? She knows what St. Teresa of Calcutta has said. He is thirsting for souls for whom he is dying. And Jesus thinks of her. I mean, you've got to imagine how difficult it was for him to speak from the cross. He did not waste words. He wasn't up there. I mean, I just think it's idiotic at times. As a non-Catholic, I, I really thought he was ca taking care of a detail. I mean, I just never thought about what it took to elevate himself enough to be able to speak a word because crucifixion is slow, slow suffocation. So he was not wasting words when he gives Mary to the beloved disciple and him to her. And we are beloved disciples, and so he is giving her to us. Mary knows the excruciating pain of watching a loved one suffer, and she understands what is being accomplished in the midst of it. My parents are still living. I haven't suffered through this. But when and if they die before I do, I know that she will be a specific consolation to me because she was with Jesus as he died. Mary is alone in her understanding and communion with her beloved son, yet she's not alone because of the gift of the beloved disciple. As the first disciple, Mary's willing to conform herself to Christ. Like Mary, no one escapes the embrace of the cross without being pierced. Jesus' example shows Mary how to forgive all of us, especially for our ingratitude for not only what Jesus, but also Mary have done for us. Jesus' self-offering on the cross, our salvation is accomplished, yet his yes and Mary's yes continues. It didn't just stop at the cross, it continues. Among other things, Mary relinquishes her right to die before her child does. There's just something so awful about a parent burying a child. And yet Mary relinquishes her quote unquote right to die before her child. Instead of lashing out at us for causing his suffering and death, her title refuge of sinners 
invites us to draw close to her. For our deliberate sins and for those from neglect or ignorance, she is the compassionate mother who calls us to repentance, calls us to confession, to receive the grace we can from her sons and her own sacrifice. Her next sorrow is that she receives back what she had given, the body of Jesus. The body matters. Arms to hug, hands to hold, cheeks and lips to kiss. Sometimes we think of a body as only a shell, but it is much more than just a container of the spirit. Jesus' body would have been very heavy, but he was her precious son. And she would need to cradle him in her arms, to rock him in her lap one more time. She would see the wounds so close. The result of the scourging, the crown of thorns, and the nail marks. And she would know even greater sufferings were those in his soul for our redemption. Would she have wept? Was she his mother? And a Jewish mother? <laughs> Good grief. I had someone saw Jesus of Nazareth, and after Jesus' body comes down to her, I don't know if you remember this, she, she's holding him like a pieta, and she is wailing. And one of my friends said, oh, that's so impious. Mary would not have wailed like that. It's like, I can't even find words. What would her wailing have done to diminish what he did? At that point, he was dead. And she was really and truly his mother. Jesus wept over Lazarus and, Lazarus, and he knew he was going to raise him from the dead in a few minutes. <laughs> and it shows us the virtue of compassion, which is pity combined with piety. You know, let's, let's still be real. We're still real human beings with feelings and thoughts. And yet, and I don't know how she could do it. I put myself in her place in some small way. They were on a tight timetable to get Jesus to the tomb. And so she couldn't hold on. She had to relinquish her right to hold him as long as she wanted. She had genuine sorrow without bitterness. And her sacrifice was allowing her son's sacrifice, consenting to it. Sometimes Mary, mother of sorrow, is also called mother of solitude. And some suffering she carried utterly alone. And I think, and this was interesting to read about, that particularly for priests, she can be a comfort when they feel most alone, <coughs> abandoned. This is a quote from Father Cesario, who's a beautiful Dominican priest. God has predestined Mary and priests to handle, albeit diversely, that is physically or sacramentally, the body of Christ. Mary did not cling to him. She let him go. A part of him would always be with her and a part of her had already died. It's relentless how time marches on, but the Sabbath was near. She relinquishes her right to choose his grave and prepare his own body for burial. She doesn't know where he'll be buried, 
but God provides. Joseph of Am Am sorry, Arimathea, a disciple, had special permission from Pilate to entomb Jesus in his newly hewn tomb, and it was unused, just as Mary's womb had never been used before. Nicodemus already has 100 pounds of spices, and they get busy preparing the body. At birth, she'd wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, and now others administered the spices and wrapped him in the linen shroud. And she does what she can, treating his body with love and respect. The stone is rolled away, sealing him away from her, from them all. And even Mary has to walk away from her precious son. These sorrows are not merely thrust on her, but she embraces them. She wills God's will. So much to ponder in silence and sorrow. Mary's faith did not keep her from suffering. There's no little formula that if you're really faithful and you really love God, it's all going to be health and wealth. Her faith did enable her not to become bitter or hard-hearted. Her grief was real, but her faith, hope, love, and even joy, according to the, to the catechism, even her joy was maintained to the end. She was bereft, but not without hope. Now, did you ever ask yourself why Mary wasn't at the tomb? Excuse me. I think Mary's the only one who believed Jesus' word. She knew he wasn't going to be there. Mary alone believes in the resurrection. This is the fullest expression of Elizabeth's greeting years before. Blessed is she who believed. She still had to walk in faith. She still had to wait the three days. But I think the tomb was empty because Jesus had already gone to Mary to greet her personally. There's no mention of his appearing, okay? You don't say, <laughs> this is Catholic dogma, but many scholars do believe it's because he appeared to her. She's the instrument of grace to all who abandoned Jesus as he went to the cross. And her joy, in contrast to the greatness of her grief, had to be as great, as immense. She stays with the disciples who she's forgiven She's in the upper room with him at the beginning of Acts, receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit. She is the first and best disciple, showing how to love Jesus to the end. She extends this spiritual motherhood beyond the beloved disciple to every one of us who are beloved disciples. And we believe the next two joys that Mary was assumed into heaven. There was no need for her body to see corruption because she had been preserved from sin from beginning to end by the grace of God, through the gift of her son Jesus. She is saved. She is saved. Okay? Um, but she is saved from all sin. <clears throat> and she's crowned queen. Her son is the king of kings, and so she's the queen mother. Why does Mary sorrow? Because she loves deeply. What increases her sorrow? I think our ingratitude. We need to ask her to help us understand our sin and to repent. She is the star in, to light the path of our spiritual journey. 
According to one author, quote, to walk with and to imitate Mary in our whole lives is to open our hearts to receive God's love in the midst of our sorrows, to listen to God's word and to act on it so as to cooperate with God for the healing and the salvation of the world. We are a part of that. By joining our sorrows to Mary as she joins hers with her sons, we participate in the work of redemption, which is just such a mystery. But we're, Mary, again, is an example for us of how you unite joys and sorrows to our Lord, and then he works in your life. Just yesterday, my daughter wrote to me and said that her new baby daughter, who was born on the 23rd of December, so she's, Tessa's just three weeks old, she said she's got a cold and she only will sleep on her chest and that had been for like 24 hours. So that meant my daughter was up for 24 hours, you know, trying to care for, trying to write to her, I mean, trying to take care of her. And so I wrote to her and, I, and it just struck me this morning, I thought I would share it because I felt as I wrote it to her to try to give her perspective for her daughter, I thought that is so true that what I'm trying to do with my daughter, I'm encouraging her to do with hers. And then I thought, Oh, and Mary, this is what you're doing with me. I wrote, it's not easy to be so intensely needed, but it's so fulfilling to know you are the person who can bring her comfort in a world that doesn't make sense to her right now. Being a mom is dying to yourself at levels you did not know were possible. Somewhere between God's strength in you and God's strength through you, he will bring this sweet girl comfort and rest. I thought, yep. So Hannah to Tessa, me to Hannah, Mary to me. Um, I just want to close with one kind of strange but simple illustration. Sorry, I don't know why this is as emotional as it is. Um, <laughs> it's near to my heart. I had a hard time connecting emotionally with Mary. You know, it, it's a strange thing to sort of have a visceral reaction against her. And then you read these dogmas, you read these things, you contemplate them, you make some intellectual changes. But it's just hard to connect with her on a personal level. So one day, a Franciscan student had come to one of my Bible studies, and she happened to mention randomly that every time her mother gave, uh, found a penny, she handed it to her and said, never forget, mommy loves you. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. I am going to do that personally. Every time I find a penny, I am going to thank God that Mary loves me. And then I'm going to thank Mary personally that she loves me. And then I'm going to go find one of my kids and say, never forget, Mommy loves you and Mother Mary loves you. To help plant that idea. See, I grew up. I can't remember any time that I didn't, wasn't told Jesus loved me, the Father loved me, and, and I really have an immense natural sort of supernatural love for Jesus and the Father, but I, it was like strange to try to connect with Mary. So anyway, I began to do that, and I cannot tell you the strange, bizarre places that I have found pennies. <laughs> I mean, I'm seriously, we've walked into hotel rooms that are perfectly clean except a pennies on the floor or on the desk. Um, in Rome, I found an Italian penny on the, on the sidewalk, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, Mary's praying for Mary. Mary loves me. This is so cool. 
I took one of my sons, Jeremiah, who was having seizures at the time. We went up to the Cleveland Clinic, and it was an emotional trip. You know, we were trying to figure out what is going on. Is he going to be okay? And we'd arrived at night, and in the morning, we'd get in the car to go over to the clinic, and there in the ice, by my door, are buried two pennies. Not one, but two. I was like, oh my gosh, she's praying for us already. This is so cool, you know, and, and I, just, I just receive it. It's not anything I've ever heard <laughs> as far as Catholic doctrine goes. Um, but is it true that Mary prays for us? Yes. Is it true that Mary loves us? Yes. And it's the simplest reminder. I have, my adult children tell me they cannot find a penny without thinking. My mother loves me and Mother Mary loves me. And my husband says if you find a quarter, that means the father loves you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but you know, we had been in Miami for a weekend one time, and I, Scott and I have time for a lot of walks, and I kept looking for a penny. I was just sure that I'd find a penny. And I said at the end, we were walking in the airport, and I said, you know, I never found a penny, but I was looking, I kept thinking, and so I was constantly thinking about Mary loving me and praying for me. So, you know, maybe I don't even need it as a reminder. Maybe it's just happening. And right then, a woman in front of me, um, we were going through security, and she goes, I, and I didn't know her. She turned around, she goes, oh, I just found a penny. Do you want it? I was like, <laughs> my husband goes, you have no idea what that means to my wife. <laughs> and then she said, oh, here's another one. <laughs> when my children come to college, I sprinkle them in all their stuff. So randomly, they fall out throughout the semester. <laughs> It's such a little thing, but you know what? We need those reminders. We need those reminders. Mary is not something just extraneous to our faith. She is a gift from the heart of our Heavenly Father. She is a gift from her Son, and we are to know her. We're to love her. We're to follow her example. And we're really supposed, I think, to pray for the way to open the hearts of our non-Catholic brethren to see this beautiful spiritual mother who is tough as nails. She's not just this wimpy, washy, pretty lady. She is a true disciple of our Lord. She will accompany us as we carry our crosses. She will comfort us and welcome us and by the grace of God be used to strengthen us for what he's called us to, which includes an unknown future of joy and sorrow. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.